0: This episode of TTSA Talks is part two of a three-part series about the UAP data problem. It features To The Stars Academy co-founder Tom DeLong, speaking with the former Deputy Assistant, Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, and TTSA National Security Advisor Chris Mellon. For more information behind the episode, please read the footnotes to this podcast on tothestarsacademy.com. And uh, our next guest is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence with 20 years in the federal government under Clinton and Bush. He is the former Minority Staff Director of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, an advisor at To the Stars Academy. He's actually uh, the chief of the Scientific Advisory Board, chairman. And uh, he's also my friend, Chris Mellon. I want to welcome you to our first podcast. I sound very official, don't I, when I read off the bios? Hey, Tom, it's great to see you. We've been talking about, uh, with Lou, um, we had a really good discussion about data, why it's important, where it comes from, how to solve solutions on the UAP issue for our government friends, but also for the world. You know, I talk to you all the time. I wouldn't call you the dream killer like we call some of our friends, (laughs) the stars, you know, but you're so good about like, we need data. You know, you're like Dr. Fauci. We need real data. (laughs) We need data. Now, when you first came on, you were very strict about that and I didn't understand why because I was like, how are we going to get data for some of this stuff? I, you know, I feel like I have some insights to this, but I, I, we need to talk about this and you're like, well, how are you going to talk about it to people? If it's just something you think in your head or you heard, and I really understand that now more than ever since we've been through the New York Times, Washington Post, Salon, since you personally have been going up and briefing people at the Pentagon, since you personally have uh, coordinated some of the the highest briefings on this subject to people at the uh, at Congress up on the Hill and whatever, can you talk a little bit? about the stigma and what what the issue is with that and why we have to stick to the science in, in terms of talking to people, but also talking to people in the government, because civilians think, oh, you work uh, in the Hill, so you know everything. You must know everything. Um, can you explain that everyone doesn't know everything and the stigma is an issue to overcome?
1: Yeah, sure, Tom. Um, yeah, as you know, when we, when we started, when we launched, I was... Um really advocating using the Nimitz case because it is a gold star example of really hard empirical data from multiple sources, multiple individuals with clearances, trained observers, multiple sensors, et cetera. And I think you know, leading and, and sticking to really uh, solid cases like that has, has worked our advantage uh, tremendously. In terms of illustrating uh, what, what a large mountain this is to climb though, we're now in a position where the United States Navy has come out publicly and said, this is real. This is happening. These things are violating restricted military airspace. And yet that was not on the front pages of every news, newspaper in the country or the evening news. You would think that something like that. Uh, people would, would immediately understand the implications and it would have an effect similar to the uh, revelation of Sputnik did in the 50s where the entire uh, country reacted to the fact that the the Soviet Union had placed a satellite into orbit and had sort of outflanked us technologically. Um, It affected each, you know, the security of our entire country. Well, this is uh, of equal or greater significance potentially, and yet we haven't reacted in the same way as a nation. Why is that? It's partly because, largely because of the stigma issue. People still have a hard time getting past the associations in their minds uh, of of the UFO topic. The fact that there's a lot of of bad data out there and a lot of baggage. And so anything we can do to provide better uh, and more credible data is going to help. And the good news is that we've made substantial progress and uh, there's a hunger for this data and, and this information. So as we can collect and provide more really solid, well-vetted information, which this AI is going to uh, help with enormously, we can continue to, to move the ball downfield. And when we do that, then we start to get buy-in from the mainstream, the media, academia, and the government. And that process feeds on itself. And we're, we're making good progress. We're, in the, we're heading in the right direction. And when we get further down this path, we're going to get more and better information that will continue to reduce the stigma. And that positive feedback loop is going to continue to help us make progress on this.
0: So, one of the things I found super fascinating about you um, and your job is one of the many jobs that you held was you were sent to, for lack of a better word, audit all the really cool, sexy stuff that they were doing throughout the DOD or the CIA, the NSA. You were the guy that came in for the Senate. Um, What I learned is that the senators and the congressmen um, have such high level thinkers around them, people that are PhDs or or are star general equivalents. But can you explain the inner workings of a senator's office or what they're dealing with and why it's hard for them to stop everything and and understand?
1: Sure. Yeah, they're they're overwhelmed with. Uh, with information from from all manner of sources, uh, just trying to keep up with their constituents is is something they have to delegate ninety nine percent of that work, um, trying to keep up with legislation, very complex legislation um, understand that they 're constantly running for office, and the burden of fundraising these days is enormous that alone. Many senators and Congressmen have admitted publicly it constitutes the majority of their day every day wow, much much less doing the people 's business and uh, keeping up with the the issues that their constituents have, responding to their mail and phone calls and, and issues, uh, educating themselves on policy so one of the things that initially shocked me before I had spent a lot of time on the hill was the fact that at the Pentagon, we would prepare briefings. For a very, very limited number of congressional officials who had access to what are called wave special access programs, and these are the most closely held, most highly classified DoD programs, and typically the the, the uh, handful of senators and congressmen who uh, were privy to those, who had the opportunity to be briefed, um, were too busy to receive the briefings. Wild. Isn't that kind of crazy? You would think that just curiosity would, would – alone, yeah. Nothing else would, would cause them to be all over it. Uh, when they did get the briefings, they rarely had – I don't recall a single follow-up question. And these briefings are very high level. And there are a lot of right. sub-compartments to these programs. They just don't have the time. I can remember uh, in another case after 9-11 – a controversy arose uh, regarding the constitutionality of of a particular collection program and none of the senators uh, were were able or willing to make the time to to go out to that agency and and get briefed and uh, they would dispatch some of us as staff members to do so but they they personally trying to get that on their on their calendar was a uh, mission impossible almost so mm-hmm. it, it's it's not what many people would think. It, it really is extremely difficult. It's almost as bad as getting to the president. Not that bad. Of course, it sounds like, it sounds like it, a you can think about it in those terms when somebody says to you, hey, can you bring this up with a senator or get them get this in front of them? It, it's really not easy.
0: In your op-ed, uh, you wrote, Unfortunately, it is impossible to gauge the overall level of UAP activity since military personnel rarely report their encounters for fear of damage to their careers. Even when reports are filed, the information generally is ignored because nobody, quote, owns the UAP issue, and the various commands and agencies involved have not shared information on UAPs. And you are the, the national security policy guy for to the Stars Academy. I know what your efforts have been over the past couple of years to help um, offer guidance and counsel on a new architecture for reporting of UAPs and how it can be accountable all the way up to Congress and if not the president. Can you describe what that is? What steps are those? What would that enact
1: for our government if some
0: of your ideas were put into place, how that could help this issue?
1: Right. So this is one of the Uh, There's a good news and a bad news part of this. Um, The bad news is we don't have this kind of architecture in place right now. We have a lot of different blind men feeling different parts of the elephant, as they say. So if there's a security incident at a DOD facility, they might take it to the FBI, who might investigate, but then it, it may never get into the hands of the Defense Department. And the same thing with CIA and NSA and DIA and so forth. So we need a sort of fusion center, which we have for counterterrorism and, and other issues. Um, that's something we've got to do. So that's, that's one of the, the steps involved. One of the beautiful ironies in this case is that uh, one of the problems that we've been fighting, one of the reasons we're in this position today is because of the Robertson panel in 1953. And this classified uh, report advised the CIA to try to muffle UFO reporting and discredit the issue out of fear that it might clog air defense reporting systems. Mm. Now, with Scout in the vault, the inverse can occur, which is that instead of clogging those systems, we can actually provide a channel of credible, vetted information to assist and facilitate DOD's analysis of, of what's going on in its air defense posture. So there are a lot of low-level, now we're concerned about drones, we're concerned about the kind of attack that cost the Saudis uh, some of their vital oil facilities. Uh, a low-level drone that, that came across the uh, Persian Gulf. We have gaps in our, in our architecture, in our radar system, for example. If we can empower anybody with a smartphone anywhere to collect information and feed it into the system, and this artificial intelligence capability does deep fake analysis, and deconflicts it with airline flights and, and all manner of, of other sort of uh, tests and databases to eliminate uh, false positives and produce a stream of reliable, credible information that's, that's easy to access, then we can contribute rather than detract from the government security posture. So it's a win-win for everybody. And this vault, because we're gonna be, uh, I believe, the gold standard for video, photographic and, and other information, I think everyone's gonna want to have that TTSA stamp because that's the only way consumers are gonna have an assurance that this is not a helicopter at night with light on it, or it's not an aircraft, or it's not a computer generated image or something like that, because we have so many layers of detection and analysis to eliminate those kinds of of reports. This is uh, ironically sort of flipping the the situation on its head uh, in terms of where we've been. And I think it's a win-win.
0: Can you see like one day the need for an agency? Like you called it a fusion center or something. I thought that was a, that's, I've never heard that before. That's exactly, is that kind of what... Um, the director of national intelligence is to some degree. It's like it's fusing the 17 intelligence
1: agencies together. They're trying to, one one of the things that that the public generally doesn't understand when the and you you hear this when people talk about the government, they talk about it. as though it's a a single rational mind, a rational act. Civilians think that. Yeah. They think, you know, oh, well, if the government knew this, then they'd do that, you know, but what they don't realize is one little part of the government knew that. And they weren't talking to the rest of the government. Right, And the rest of the government didn't know it, including the president in many cases. So if you, you know, this is very well documented in, in academia, for example, analyses of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's frightening to see how different the perspectives were of CIA and the military and State Department and how different their information was and their agendas were and how sometimes self-serving they were and how the president had to struggle to make sense of information coming in, conflicting information from all wow. these different sources. Yeah unfortunately, it's more like a feudal system with these baronies, and there are a lot of them out there. And the king is getting granting an audience to these different noblemen and barons and hearing their stories, but he's not really got direct access to all the information. And they have their own agendas. So that's a, a constant challenge for the government. And uh, it's certainly bedeviling us in, in this area. Um, fortunately, you know, I think we're raising the level of awareness on this, and people in Congress are beginning to become aware of it. Uh, and the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So, I'm hopeful that, um, having first at least identified the problem and helped people to understand that it's a credible, valid issue, uh, we can now take the next step and get serious about it. You know, this.
0: it's funny, I looked at the DOD and when I learned from you guys to, for civilians. Uh, people listening that aren't in the military government, it's really interesting. I kind of look at the DOD where you have your Secretary of Defense, he would be like your CEO, you have the Under Secretary of Defense, and then under that you have managers of each division. And that's where you come in. You were the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, which meant you ran the intelligence that was coming into the Department of Defense, and you would probably cycle that up to the two people above you. My question would be. How important would it be if there was an AI system like the vault that we just, that we just built at To The Stars? Would that have been beneficial for an intelligence manager like yourself to deal with?
1: Yeah, I was a step lower than undersecretary, but, but nevertheless, I was in that chain and was the, the deputy assistant secretary of intelligence. And, and the fact is that the government writ large is increasingly dependent on what is called open source information. You know, it used to be that we had to have spies and, and code breakers to, to answer most of the questions we had about, say, the Soviet Union because it was a big black box, and we had to have classified sources inside to, to get information. Nowadays, one of our challenges is uh, mining and analyzing the immense volumes of open source data that are available and making sure that with our intelligence budget, we focus exclusively on the things that you can't get for free through the open source you know, allocating our resources on those remaining hard problems and hard targets. Like North Korea, for example, there's not a lot of open source information or access to that country. There's an example where you're heavily dependent on, on classified sources. But this is a perfect case because it's very hard to have radar coverage is effective at low altitudes around the continental United States. We know that um, our radar systems are not detecting these vehicles that are violating restricted military airspace are coastal defense systems. It's the onboard, the new advanced onboard radars of the F-18s that are identifying them. And interestingly, they haven't been reporting that to NORAD. So NORAD's not even had that in their picture in 2015 when this was going on so often. So if we can empower people to uh, who have smartphones now um, all over the world and this AI capability also automatically translates foreign languages among many other things, then we can help alert them to new trends and new developments and help to bring the picture into, into clearer focus.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited about the, the plan unrolling. So some of, the, some of the things that people don't know is that too, they kind of look at us and they say, why are you guys doing science Aerospace technology and entertainment—how does that all work? Well, I'm excited to use the educational arm of our company, which is the entertainment arm, to galvanize people's hearts and minds around this subject, have an understanding that it's real, and how they can contribute. If we could use those entertainment pieces to really push people to get involved with the artificial intelligence. For so, for me, it's can we put out a hundred million dollar movie to get everybody thinking? about this subject and then get 10% of those people to start downloading the app and contributing. And if there is an event, we can ping everyone in the area to point their phones and where to point it. We can get more and more data and we can essentially put up a net, a global net that's looking for this stuff at all times and then be able to look at the top 10 cases a day, a week and deploy some of the people uh, that we have at our disposal. I mean, obviously someone like Lou, who was an intelligence um as you guys call him a ground pounder he was the guy on the ground dealing in the dirty work but we also had people that used to be on our advisory board like dr uh, colin kelleher he's a biologist a phd a super smart guy but he was on the ground traveling around to these locations as well so if we were able to narrow it down every few days every week every month and send out a team i mean th- that's where it starts to get exciting where we can do further studies use different technologies and hopefully solve the kind of who, what, where, when, why, get some predictive analysis to that. Where do, we, where do you see us in the next few years? Yeah.
1: So I think we can change the conversation with this. One, one of the barriers um, that, that we've faced uh, in terms of, of credibility with the government and the academic and scientific communities is lack of credible data. Nobody has a database of vetted, credible information. It's sort of unfiltered. Anybody can submit anything, and um, there's there's really very little that you can do with it. So this will be the first time there's a database of really vetted information where you've separated the wheat from the chaff, and people can begin to do studies and, and feel they have some reliability and credibility with regard to the data that they're using. It'll also be a standardized database in the cloud that people can interact with and use their own algorithms on. So that will also facilitate deep analysis by different interested communities, whether it's government or academia. And all of that is going to help make this field more credible to the public and help us begin to identify the patterns you're talking about and and help to bring things into focus.
0: How have your conversations been with some of the leaders in government on this stuff. Well, what are they like when, they, when, when you're bringing in these people from the Department of Defense, whether they're people that run the programs or they're people that are pilots, you know, that are trained observers, that we spend millions of dollars on, that are officers, that went to college, that like, these are the real deal. Like, what's the reaction?
1: It's, yeah, it's really interesting, and it, and it varies considerably. And uh, this started actually uh, when Lou was still in the Pentagon. And I was introducing him to some people who were close to General Mattis and uh, trying to get this on, on the secretary's radar, actually get a briefing to his level because uh, the normal systems weren't working and the, the, the naval fighter pilots were out there confronting these things and nobody was, was taking it up the chain of command to, to take any action to support them. So uh, Lou proceeded, and I remember one of these briefings, the individual he was briefing was a uh, naval officer who had been a nuclear submarine officer, very bright, able individual, and he actually sort of shut down. He started, he started asking, Lou, do we think these are Russian and Lou said no. do we think they're Chinese? no?" And he proceeded to Lou present more information and videos and so forth. And the guy you know actually kind of started sweating and <laughs> he didn't want to hear any more about it. He kind of <laughs> shut down. Wow. So occasionally you get that sort of reaction. The other individual that, that I introduced Lou to was a, a former fighter pilot himself. And so he had a, a different reaction and wanted to meet with some of the pilots. And, and that led to an ongoing conversation. Uh, typically, I would say there's a lot of interest. There's a great hunger on the part of the staff to get more information they can provide to their principals because they've, they've got the luxury of spending a bit more time on this, and they're generally more open and mm-hmm. recognize that it's, it's a serious issue. The senators have had some briefings and the congressman, um, but they've spent less time on it and some are still holding reservations and certainly concerned about the possibility of being ridiculed if they're publicly associated with this issue. So the more information, the more compelling video, there's nothing like video. Right. There's still a great appetite for more video. And this kind of capability can help to, to produce that. Credible, firsthand video. Before I ask this question, I was talking with Lou a little bit about
0: coming into contact with Joe Sherman. So obviously, uh, for people listening to this, uh, give them a little background. Pricewaterhouse is um, a big consulting firm, hundreds of thousands of employees. They solve very difficult problems for the biggest companies in the world. So because they would roll into Google and Google needs to spend 10 billion on a big problem, they would be the ones to come in and study it, run a bunch of artificial intelligence and predictive analysis before they spend the money of of how best to achieve it and how best to unroll it to the world and what it might do to the world. I mean these are really big projects with the best of the best PhD level people working them and Joe is one of the lead AI guys over uh, as a partner at Price Waterhouse and what's your impression of him and what the system can do and potentially where it can go? I'm sure it caught you a little bit by surprise how good he's executed this.
1: Yeah, he's done an incredible job and I think what surprised me, his willingness and ability to devote incredible amounts of time and sweat and hard labor to put this together. Somebody with, with his skill set is in high, high demand. He's a very busy guy, and he still went over and above to do this um, because he's so passionate about the issue. I, mean, I was just reviewing the flowcharts on the AI system. I can't uh, even look at those. I, I mean, it's like, today. it's like reading Chinese to me or something. Yeah, know? it's great stuff. The level of rigor and analysis that's automatically, all these submissions are going to be subjected to is extraordinary. And that's what's really gonna set this apart because nobody has a really filtered, credible database that, that people can do research from and have a high assurance that they've got, you know, solid information. So this is a game changer in that regard. You know, science, the scientific community says, well, we need data, you know, you want us to take this seriously, so we need data. So that's one of the, the ways that that, the, that request is being answered. This system will provide data that is of a, of a level of credibility hasn't been available before this in a manner, structured in a manner in the cloud that can be accessed in which they can apply their own algorithms as well. So it, it should facilitate a new level of, of research and understanding. It'll all be available to the public. Anyone will be able to go in there and see it in search. I often go to the uh, National UFO Reporting Center website and the MUFON website just to see what people are reporting on a daily basis, what's going on around the world and the country. And it's extraordinary, but it's not subjected to any kind of rigorous analysis.
0: Right. That's where we come in. I tell this uh, little story, um, the quick version of it is one day I was reading an account, uh, a guy that witnessed a typical kind of ball of light. It looked like it came down and landed saw something anomalous and there's a, a certain type of beam of light that came out towards him. But then one day, a few weeks later, I went on the CIA website because you can search 20, 30,000 declassified UFO documents there. People don't know this. Like the CIA has been pretty forthcoming about old reports. And so I was searching them and I'm reading through and here's the, nut, the exact same ball of light, the exact same anomalous thing with the exact same beam of light. It's the per- same thing, but it was from 1952. And then about six months later, I was reading something that was, I don't know if it was like the Dead Sea Scrolls or if it was one of the books of the Old Testament or something, but had something very similar. And it just struck me that how great it's going to be once we tie in unclassified documents, maybe even classified ones for guys like you that have security clearances, but tying in you know, documents, tying in social media and in real time, anything uploaded to YouTube, tying in all the MUFON databases that exist, then all the places to scrub the data with, like homeland security FAA, weather anomalies, all that kind of stuff. But you start to get patterns over decades, if not thousands of years. But from your opinion, I mean, doesn't this seem like this predictive pattern analysis with all those pipelines coming into
1: one place? Doesn't that seem like that would help? Yeah, part of the beauty of what Joe has done is he's created a system that's entirely cloud-based, end-to-end, so that um, sophisticated, high-end users can plug in in that process anywhere along the way. They can then compare, download data, and use, say, classified databases from overhead systems, satellite systems, whatever, and, and run their algorithms and take all of the data and pool it in a data lake, to run their analysis from an unlimited number of sources. So they'll do it on the other side if it's highly classified data of their own firewalls and in their system. But this is so flexible and, and standardized using commercial off the shelf technologies, it's going to be very user friendly for those high end consumers with sophisticated requirements and massive amounts of data from other sensor systems. So he's designed a very robust, highly flexible, efficient architecture. It can handle massive amounts of information. And the other thing is that with Scout, we should have better, more data coming in eventually on the front end because as people uh, see something and then begin to report it live, other people who are within uh, range of that that object will get notified and be able to look up and, and record it themselves. So we should get more angles, more viewing angles, more and better data. And, and that can help also so often when people report these things and record them they're say five miles away over some town but nobody in that town knows these things over' right there
0: right above they're, that, they're yeah.
1: not they're not turning not looking upward and turning their cameras up so yeah. uh, as this starts to proliferate uh, those kinds of opportunities will arise as well you know last question I have for you that I think is
0: super important for young people to hear your thoughts on this. We created To The Stars Academy uh, as a public benefit corporation. My goal was to build a three-dimensional institution that could handle what everyone wants, disclosure or confirmation. Now, in doing that, our company is most likely going to have, we already have a contract with the U.S. government, um, and we're going to have more. We'll probably have classified contracts, and we're going to have plenty and the majority of stuff that's, that's not classified. So- My fans and young people that don't know anything more than just the internet would look at you, oh my God, you're working with the big bad government. I thought your whole point was not to do that. I thought your whole point was to bring answers. Can you give a little bit of your thoughts on why it's important that To The Stars works with the US government, even though we're a public benefit corporation and doing things for the public? Why
1: is it important for us to do that? My goal from the beginning has been to assist you and others in helping to get to the bottom of this and understand what this phenomenon really is, where these things are from and how they work. And if you ask yourself, how best can one do that, uh, the answer is by using the capabilities that are already bought and paid for by the American taxpayer. Right. The most capable, sophisticated sensors by far are the ones deployed by the Defense Department and the intelligence community. They've got capabilities many capabilities that nobody else can touch. So for those young people, if we we all all of us who are intrigued by this mystery and captivated by it and want to get answers have an interest in working with the government because the government has a unique ability to obtain technical information uh, that will identify these vehicles, help to track them and understand how they work and what their agenda is and so forth, they can do more once the government's properly engaged than any other entity in the world by far to help us all answer the question. We all have the same shared interest. The American people and their government, if there's a potential threat, we all have the same interest in finding out about it and revealing that. And if there's not, so much the better. But in the meantime, until we're able to clarify uh, what's going on and what the, the mystery is behind this phenomenon, we, we've all got a, a very common shared interest in moving forward together. So hopefully, Uh, working in the government will be perceived in that light.
0: And I also feel it's similar to like the pandemic where it's kind of like a lot of times you don't know uh, until it hits you what's wrong with it or how bad it is or if it's a threat or not. And I think with this, we have these machines that are coming in and out of our airspace at speeds and velocities and doing things that we can't even wrap our minds around, let alone conceptualize by looking at it everyone's mind then goes, well, who's piloting that? Or who sent that here? Or what's it doing? And that's why the government needs to be involved. Because if we, as we start to dig into this and start to find out answers um some of those answers might not be easily digestible. And that, do you agree? That's the government's job is to know that stuff and to handle that for the American people. The Absolutely.
1: World? So You know, more specifically, it may turn out, for example, that some of these triangular craft uh, that people are reporting, they may have a different origin and source than what the Navy is observing off the East Coast. And perhaps one of these craft uh, does turn out to be Russian or Chinese and some of these others are from somewhere else and have uh, a, employ a different technology and at the behest of a different group with a different agenda. So, well, it's not like one size really, fits all. Yeah, right, right. So there's a lot of work to be done to to clarify all the above and bringing together large new amounts of credible information, empowering millions of people to contribute to that and engage is is all for the better. Do you
0: think Air Force Space Command now that they're separating into their own um, military branch. Do you think that any of the UAP stuff filters into the minds of people there? Do you think how often the White House would get briefings, if ever at all? Do you think it's on their radar?
1: Yeah, it is. It it, it typically, I would say, is on their radar in the sense that we know other countries have, have test programs and are employing some radical new technologies. And so they're very interested in in anomalies of that kind. And this will result in improved space surveillance capabilities. One of the reasons for creating this new service is to increase the, the advocacy at high levels on budget and policy issues. So one of the things that you're going to find over time is increased funding for space-based sensors and collection systems and so forth. And that is going to help shed new light potentially on what these things are, where they're coming from
0: yeah cool well I think uh, I always take anything that you throw my way very seriously you know someone brings up national security policy everyone gets quiet so you can talk you know someone brings up uh, you know aerospace and engineering they let Steve Justice talk no one else has much to say someone brings up you know intelligence gathering everyone lets Jim Cinevan talk so in any case it's, it's really worked out wonderfully well thanks for joining us on our first conversations here we will talk more thanks for your
1: time okay super thanks Tom
0: For more TTSA talks, please visit tothestarsacademy.com.